Welcome to those joining us in the traditional sanctuary and those watching through the broadcast today. It's good to be able to study the Word of God together. And as we approach the Word of God this morning, would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last weekend, I had the chance to spend a relaxing day and a half with a friend at her cabin doing a whole lot of nothing, enjoying the weather, getting out on the water in my kayak, roasting hot dogs over a campfire, taking a walk to a local ice cream establishment. There's nothing like summer sunshine and ice cream to feel like summer to me. But my favorite part of the weekend was really an unexpected treat, a lot of laughing that came from delving into an old stack of magazines at the cabin that came from 1979. And if you haven't seen a magazine from 1979 lately, let me tell you, it shows a whole lot about our culture that has changed. And one of the biggest differences that I noticed was about every third page was a cigarette ad. You've come a long way, baby. Less tar, more refreshing, invigorating, the tops and elegance. And it made me think about how long it takes for truth to work its way forward in a culture that's based on economic profit. Because the truth is, there was a time when people genuinely thought that smoking was good for you, that it was good for the circulation and all that. And there was a time when people openly encouraged others to smoke because they thought they were helping them in some way. Even when the truth was discovered that it's not good for lung health or circulation or pregnant women, people who stood to gain economically from this business, from the earnest, hard-working tobacco farmers to the high-powered tobacco executives, had a hard time accepting that truth. Because what happens when what is true makes you rethink every aspect of your life? When embracing what's true will cause you to have to stop living in one way and start all over. It's a huge and a painful process, and you have to be very sure that this truth is worth the pain of the change. When I was in seminary, I took a cross-cultural trip to Appalachia, which is the mountain region around Kentucky, and I heard firsthand from families of tobacco farmers in the church how they were just agonized over what to do, because there was no other cash crop that they could find, that they could actually grow on their small plots of land that would allow them to provide for their family and stay on their family homesteads. And in the Appalachian culture, the land is everything. People just don't move away from their family homesteads. But could they, in good conscience, grow a substance that they knew was causing cancer in people? It was a heart-wrenching, deep struggle for these farmers. Embracing the truth and deciding what to do about it had a deep and a life-changing cost for them. For, and for a family farm that had been important to the whole family for generations. And that kind of pain caused a lot of passion in them. And the reason that I share that story today is because I think it's kind of hard for us to relate to this Demetrius guy when it comes to his passionate defense of the worship of idols. But this wasn't only about Demetrius's beliefs, it was also about his economic trade, it was also his identity, and it was the identity of his family and of his larger community. And I think that we have a real hard time relating in particular about this, because when we think about idols, statues that are carved to represent spirits or ancestors or powers that people felt needed to be appeased, 
I think it's easy for us to feel like Isaiah did in Isaiah 44. Isaiah the prophet knew the truth of the living God who's so much bigger than anything we can create. He knew that God can't be contained by our creation. So for Isaiah, this concept that a person would carve out an idol and then worship it was just an exercise in ridiculousness. Isaiah 44 talks about a man involved creating idols, and it says, Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. Their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself. Or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Now that might seem really foreign to our culture, but it's very much still in practice all over the world. In West Africa, there's a great deal of business around the creation and sale of idols. And for the Christians living there, the tension in this culture, by living in this culture that still sacrifices to idols, and their trust in God's immediate presence in Jesus Christ, that's a current reality that they live in, that tension. And it struck me just how obviously different that the Christians there were in trusting Jesus for blessing and peace and protection instead of making those sacrifices. But it was a big step to step against the culture and do that. There was one man that I met in West Africa who was intrigued by Jesus, but he wasn't ready to let go of that idol sacrifice culture. And he explained his choice to me by saying, I have two legs. If one gives out, I still have the other one. But God isn't honored by our half-hearted trust. If we trust that Jesus is Lord, we must trust that he's Lord of everything. And sacrificing to the idols of the world to provide health or happiness while just giving lip service to Jesus' lordship only derails us from living into the fullness of the life that Christ wants us to know. For the Christians in these areas of the world where idols are physical things, every single day people see and are reminded that they serve a different savior. And I have to ask, in our lives today, do people know from watching us that we serve a different savior than the world does? See, there's a lot of idol worship in this country, too. But our idols are not the same as those in West Africa or in these stories about the temples of the Greek pantheon. But we do create our own idols today, and we still sacrifice to them, thinking that our sacrifices will result in blessing or acceptance or protection. It's just in this culture, in this place and time, how we create those idols and how we sacrifice to them look very different. Have you believed that perfect fitness will bring you happiness? That when the scale says the right number, you'll be happy? What have you sacrificed to that idol? Have you believed that economic success or achievement at work will bring you happiness? That money and prestige will bring you security and power? What have you sacrificed of your life to that idol? Have you believed that being the best in sports, in music, in knowledge, in your particular field, 
will bring you happiness or give you value? What have you sacrificed of your life to that idol? Did it bring life? Have you believed that popularity or being liked or accepted by the culture will bring, bring you happiness? What have you sacrificed of what you know to be true to that idol? See, the truth is there are many idols that we create as there are desires in the human heart. But the problem with idols is they're just lifeless things that we have created that are meant to represent something bigger than us, something that we want. And we create them, we dream them up, we sacrifice to them, but they don't have any power to save us or give us hope because they don't have any more power than we do. When you're at the end of your rope, no idol that you created will carry you further because you're the one who created it. And in our modern culture, especially since the dawn of the internet, this is how many people approach God. They ask themselves, who do I want to believe God is? I like this about Hinduism. I like this about animism. I like this about Buddhism. I like this about Islam. I like this about Judaism. I like this about Christianity. And I'm going to take all these pieces and I'm going to paste together a collage that I will call God. And surprise, I find out he looks exactly like me. And he thinks exactly how I think. And he feels exactly how I feel. Now, who would ever have guessed that God and I think the same way about everything? It's pretty easy to serve a God that you created. But when trouble comes, will you call on that God to help you? When you're faced with a life and death reality, confidence in that self-created God starts to wear thin because one starts to ask, what if God actually already is someone? What if he is the creator of you? What if he is the one who existed before the dawn of time and who will exist eternally long after your bones have rotted in the ground? Can you tell him who he is allowed to be to you? Can you tell him to toe the line of what you think God should be? Or is it in your best interest to find out who he is and what he thinks and what he has done? Because if God already is God, then his power is known only in allowing him to be who he is in your life. And any, power, or any idol that you create, that power will die with you. But the God who actually is, the great I am, who was and is and is to come, his power will carry you into eternity with him. Because your sin died with Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the last and only sacrifice necessary. And that sacrifice was not made by you to appease God, but by God himself, the loving Father, for you. Because of Jesus, you will know a life beyond any kind of power you could create, but will you let him be God of your life? Or just give him lip service with half a heart, and try to limp by on the power of the other leg. In our story from Acts today, Demetrius has seen his world changing. Paul has only begun to start preaching in this area. Priscilla and Aquila have set up in Ephesus. Apollos has been preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. People are turning away from the worship of idols to the one true God. They've started to see that the idol worship that everyone around them has called helpful is actually creating a disease of fear in people instead of freedom. And that the living God, who is greater than any spirit or any other thing of earth, wants them to know him firsthand instead through Jesus Christ as a beloved child of the king. And once people embrace that truth, it changes their lives. 
It's clear that they serve a different Savior, and it changes things around them. And it strikes me as kind of a strange thing that Demetrius is as scared as he is about this because it seems like this movement is still pretty small at this point in Ephesus. And it seems unlikely that the idol worship trade would come crashing down overnight. But he is scared, which leads me to believe that God must have been knocking on his heart. And somehow he must have begun to realize, as Isaiah said, this thing in my hand is a lie. But his whole self-understanding was tied up in this business and this culture of worshiping idols, getting people to sacrifice to these things that can't help them or save them, but actually harms them. And he had started to see the joy and the peace that these Christians were living by was so different. He could see that it could very easily replace the props of religion that he had known with the force of a tidal wave. And just like Paul was zealous to destroy the Christians before he met Jesus, Demetrius was just as zealous to silence them, to keep them from sharing this message that would change things so completely. Ephesus was a city that contained a shrine to Artemis, a Greek goddess, and that shrine brought in a lot of economic business, kind of like in our culture, how people go to worship at the Mall of America. It was what they were known for internationally, the city with the Artemis shrine. And not only did Demetrius feel threatened in his business, he felt his community pride was at stake. If we're no longer the city of Artemis, we won't be important anymore. So do you see where that rage comes from that leads to this mob? Before you know it, he's whipped up thousands of people, a whole stadium full of people who are furious at the Jews and the Christians. The Jews didn't buy idols either. And this is a dangerous situation. This is the kind of story that you hear on the news that usually ends in some kind of bloodbath. And I think that what happens in this story is so important for us to learn from in our situation today of being Christians in a culture that largely honors self-made idols instead of honoring Jesus Christ as Lord. Because in this story, after Demetrius whips up this crowd into a frenzy, some of the Christians who had been with Paul are captured by this crowd, and Paul's first impulse is to try to talk to them. This is Acts 19, starting with verse 30. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials in the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Can you hear that crowd? Can you feel the energy and the rage and the fear? Now let me ask you, how effective is it to try to speak truth to an enraged people? Is that a good idea? Paul is an amazing man, but he also seems to be fairly stubborn. And if he would have made his way into that arena and told them, the reason Christians don't buy idols is because there is no Artemis and idols are false. Do you think there would have been mass conversions at that point? (laughs) Hmm. This is what I think. I think if the Holy Spirit of the living God had called and empowered Paul to do that, it would have served that purpose. But instead, through the community and the circumstance, the Holy Spirit was telling Paul, this is not the time to speak. This is the time to let God fight the battle for you. 
God's purposes are served best here, not by trying to defend yourselves, but by simply letting your lives speak. And that's completely opposite with how we usually want to react. When we are insulted for our faith, when we're persecuted, when we're called names, everything in us wants to defend and explain and push back with the truth that we know almost like a weapon. But when Jesus called us to turn the other cheek, he wasn't kidding. Our ability to find life in something other than being right or being powerful in the eyes of others speaks to a power that's greater than ourselves, a power that we serve. If Paul would have stepped forward and used this chance to tell the angry mob what's wrong with the idol culture, I'm pretty sure it would have resulted in a lot of death. And the story of the church's life in Ephesus would have been very different. But instead, Paul listened to the nudge of the Spirit to be still and turn the other cheek, standing firm in what they knew to be true, but letting God fight the battle. And that is what God did. So here you have this murderous, furious crowd chanting for two hours. How's that going to end? Well, God sent a pagan city clerk. And this clerk stood up before them, and in Acts 19.37, he said, You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his associates have a grievance against somebody, the courts are open. So are the pre-councils. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in the legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. He dismissed them, and they went home. Seriously. Unbelievable. A miracle that God put in place using an unbelieving city official because he is Lord of all. Now think about this. That angry mob, what did they go away thinking about the Christian church that day? They left with thoughts in their hearts that they had almost murdered people who, it was pointed out to them by one of their own, had actually showed them no personal malice. People who believed something different, who served a different Savior, but who had not tried to defend or strike back or offend them in any way when they were facing possible mob ex execution for their beliefs. They were people who trusted in their God to save, and they were saved. Now, do you think some of them were curious about who these men and women were and what they were willing to lay their lives down for? When the Christian allowed, Christians allowed God to be their defender, the people saw that they actually were different. They weren't just people who had a contrary theology to argue. They were people who actually trusted the living God with their lives and with their deaths. They trusted God alone to be God. So when you're confronted by a culture that wants to tell you who their God is allowed to be, when you're confronted by the rage of a culture that sees your faith in Jesus as anti-society or fuddy-duddy or simply unenlightened, how should you respond? How do we live as followers of a different Savior, of Jesus Christ, who turned the other cheek but would not budge from the truth of God's sovereignty? Can we live, as these Christians did in Ephesus, with absolute lack of malice, 
toward those who live in self-reflected idol worship of various kinds, while still holding on to the truth of the God that we didn't create but who created us, the God who is the great I am and who was and who is and is to come. There are some things that the Holy Spirit will nudge our hearts to speak before the world, and especially with individuals, one-on-one in relationship. But there are also times when he simply whispers to our heart, this is not the time to speak, this battle is mine. And as he said in Exodus 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still, to be still and know that he is God. Because the thing is, we can tend to forget when we take up our own defense, we can tend to forget that people are never the enemy to God. That in our hurt and our struggle, we can tend to forget that God loves each and every person. And God wants each and every person to be wooed to his side in love. I don't think I've ever heard of a situation where someone lost an argument to a Christian and said, oh, I lost that argument, I guess I have to get baptized. Because the eternal relationship of salvation started in Jesus Christ is given to us in love, not won through an argument. And as we stand for Jesus Christ in our culture, we need to stand as Jesus did, being willing to show self-sacrificial love in turning the other cheek and trusting God's power to impact and change the human heart. And it's not always easy. It's not always fun. But it is the way of true peace and ultimate joy. So what battles are you facing in your life? What idols are vying for your attention? Will you let God be the Lord of the battle in your life? Because when you do, you'll be amazed at what it looks like to the world and to your own heart to serve a different Savior. Please join me in prayer. Lord, in John 17, you prayed for your people. Not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be in the world protected from the evil one. So Lord, we pray today as we follow you that you would guard our hearts, that you would keep us from fear or bitterness, and instead strengthen us by the joy of knowing that you are the way and the truth and the life, and that we are home in your love, that we have a promise in you that the world needs that nothing can ever take away from us. Remind us, Lord, that the battle is yours, and that on the cross you have already won it for us, now and forever. So we release our burdens to you, trusting in your grace to lead us and to guide us. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.